Okay. Hello, friends. Uh, this is Dr. Rob C. Thompson coming to you uh, with my children, Everett and Corinne, from the laundry room because we are in pandemic version 3.0. Uh, I want to tell a brief story before we get into this. Uh, about a month ago now, uh, my great aunt passed away. She's 80 years old, lived a good life, uh, but died in a CAT scan machine or MRI machine, which is not the best way to go. Anyhow, here I am at a Catholic mass. Picture that, friends. And uh, right, right, Corinne? What an, what an idea. Uh, and uh, I'm seated between uh, my cousin, uh, younger cousin who's in high school, and my brother-in-law. Uh, four days later, both of them come down with the COVID. Uh, for my brother-in-law, it was a quick recovery. For my cousin, it was a few days. Both of them were vaccinated. I had just had my booster two weeks earlier because uh, with all uh, most educators in the United States, uh, I, got, I got my vaccine uh, back in March. Uh, so, you know, I really needed to re-up that. Uh, and uh, I had no no symptoms whatsoever, and I did not bring it home to my uh, three-year-old and my infant, who are, again, right with me here. Uh, I guess as a reminder. <laughs> uh, so I was fortunate, yes. Uh, speaking of pretty good science, uh, I am joined by uh, an appropriate doctor. I am a doctor, of course, of performance studies, uh, but Dr. Matt Hatkoff is a doctor of microbiology and knows a little bit more about this than I do. Dr. Hatkoff, welcome. Thanks for having me back. I kind of wish that you didn't need me to do another podcast, but hey, here I am. Happy to, to talk to your listeners and talk about uh, COVID and Omicron. Yeah, uh, for, for those of you who haven't heard our earlier pandemic episodes, maybe you're new to the show, Matt uh, is on the emergency response team for the college uh, in response to the pandemic. He's been doing that for two long and difficult years. And uh, Matt is my partner teaching a seminar uh, in which we cover uh, hidden worlds, the hidden worlds of the paranormal on my end and the hidden worlds of microbiology and conspiracy theory on Matt's side. Well, I guess conspiracy theory is sort of between us. <laughs> yeah, you never would have thought that conspiracy theory would blend into microbiology, but here we are in 2022 still talking about it. The pandemic has brought us so many wonderful, wonderful things. So... <laughs> Speaking of wonderful things, what's going on right now, Matt? Just give us the lay of the land. So we are in pandemic version three. I, I'm saying version three, but you know, really we had the first one, then we had the Delta wave. So that's why I'm saying this is three. Most of the media calls it number three. It's felt like four or five though. Where are we at? So to orient everyone, I believe depending on where you live, this really is the quote, like fourth or fifth surge. I mean, we're going on to month 23 of this current pandemic. And what's happened over the course of these two years uh, is basically uh, the coronavirus, COVID, right, has the ability to mutate as it spreads throughout the human population, as it adapts to living with inside of our bodies. Uh, COVID also has this super special ability uh, especially, uh, to essentially spread to other animals like uh, mice and deer and minks. So that gives it other populations that it can play around and mutate in. Um, and what happens is if it mutates enough, it becomes a variant of concern if you're following sort of the WHO protocol, meaning it has some, I'll, I'll put it in air quotes and none of you can see me, some special abilities to either spread faster to evade the immune response, whether that through natural infection with previous strains of COVID or through the vaccination and what we've seen with Omicron is essentially the ability to, one, spread much faster within a population, and two, 
partially evade the immune response triggered by either previous infection of the original strain or the Delta strain, um, which is allowing it to essentially spread like wildfire throughout the entire planet Earth. So now, what can we expect if we get the Omicron? Give us, how, how's that go? Well, I guess we have to put people into a couple of different buckets. Uh, we have the Rob Thompsons of the world who are fully vaccinated, who are boosted, who may never know that they are infected, may uh, avoid infection completely if they're exposed. Uh, there are a number of fully vaccinated and boosted individuals who will develop symptoms. And on the average, those will be significantly milder than uh, the people in the other buckets that I'll describe because they have a uh, robust immune response to this variant. While it's not completely specific to Omicron, it's enough to uh, cause it to form a milder disease. And I don't want to have the listeners believe that this is truly mild. If you get it, it can still knock you on your ass for 48 to 72 hours, even if you're a young, healthy, boosted individual. Um, So, you know, it still can be a serious disease, especially in young children who are unvaccinated, immunocompromised people, or older individuals, even if they're they're boosted. Um, you then have the population that is fully vaccinated but has not received the booster after five months from the end of their second dose, or sort of never completed that vaccination, has some combination of vaccination and previous infection. They're going to be more susceptible. They're more likely to have a longer or more severe disease course And then, of course, you have my least favorite people on the planet, sorry if you're out there, the unvaccinated individuals uh, who are still going to most likely face a fairly severe disease course. Um, Now, while this may not be as severe on a personal level as Delta or the previous original strain for the average individual, this is still a deadly virus that can kill unvaccinated vaccinated or boosted individuals. Now, each of those levels of um, deadliness will sort of decrease based on your previous immune response. Um, But it is still a very serious disease that is spreading quickly. So at a societal level, this is the riskiest or the, uh, the most dangerous phase of the pandemic. So here I am surrounded by my children. Uh, Matt had his uh, son, Ben, uh, also this during this past year. How old has Ben now? Five months? Uh, five months, yes. Five months. And uh, Everett's six months. So we're, we're real, we got those. They're very close together. Now, tell me about children. You mentioned children briefly, but tell me a bit, a bit, a bit more about children, particularly since many of them are unvaccinated or can't be vaccinated if they're under five. So we, we generally know that COVID, it seems to be, regardless of the, the strain we're talking about, uh, causes a milder disease in children, especially younger children. Um, so they're not at risk for as severe complications. That being said, we are still seeing, especially in this surge, a large uptick in the percent of cases uh, in the pediatric, I shouldn't say the percent of cases, the number of pediatric cases requiring uh, hospitalization, whether that's acute, sort of what we think of the regular hospital for everybody out there, or intensive care, the ICU. So they're still at risk. Now they're at lower risk than the rest of the population, the adult population, which is good. I think that's sort of allowed us to, uh, at least Rob and I and our wives, to breathe a little bit of sigh of relief in case one of us did get sick. Um, But it's still serious. And 
Right now, at least in the United States, we have the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines that are approved for the five and older population. Uh, we are still waiting on the data about the safety and effectiveness of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine for the six month and older population, which hopefully upon last report should be coming out in late February or March, uh, at least for the Moderna vaccine if all stays on track. The question I have for you now is COVID parties. Some people are saying, oh, there's COVID everywhere, and I'm going to get COVID anyway. Oh, why don't we get together with my friend who has the COVID and uh, get it over with? Good idea? Bad idea? I, I know what you're going to say, but uh, why is it a bad idea? Okay, so our generation had chicken pox, whereas uh, people born a few years later after Rob and I actually were able to get the chicken pox vaccine. And we knew that that virus caused a milder disease in young individuals than it does in older individuals. So that made good epidemiological sense at the time, especially without a vaccine. However, it's now, you know, 2022. COVID parties are a bad idea. If you have just looked at one newspaper or seen one scientific article, we still know that there is a lot about the coronavirus that we are unsure about, especially when it comes to long-term consequences you hear about long COVID, you hear about its ability to actually damage certain cells that will then trigger diabetes in individuals. So getting Omicron to, quote, get it over with doesn't necessarily play out because even vaccinated and boosted individuals are at a risk, albeit very, very reduced risk, of some long-term consequences that aren't fully understood. Well, let me game the other side of this, because you and I are going back to work, and in part, you and I have argued that we need to be back at college teaching our students. Should we feel, I mean, people, like you said, people who are boosted even, like even if you're very careful, it's possible you could end up in the hospital. How comfortable should we feel if we're taking all our precautions? I, I think we should feel pretty comfortable, because I think there's a difference between going out of your way to get sick and starting to live your life and accepting the risk management. Because we were boosted, we're still wearing masks in public, are, we have significantly mitigated any risk. So what we're trying to do during the surge is risk mitigation and actively prolonging the surge by having a COVID party seems like not a, a smart move. I mean, in theory, any of us could get a nasty flu that could land us in the hospital or, you know, progress to pneumonia, right? Exactly. And uh, one thing that I, I didn't mention before that I should when I'm talking about societal risk is this is a societal risk because it is overwhelming the hospitals, especially in the northeast of uh, the United States, not because everyone there has COVID. There is a significant proportion of COVID but there is still flu, there's RSV, there's heart attacks, there's strokes, there's cancer, there's car accidents, there's just regular life. And these people are getting delayed care, which leads to severe consequences, mainly because the overworked, overtired, burnt out healthcare workers have been asked to carry this burden for two years. And it's simply becoming too much because Omicron is spreading so fast through the entire population. All right, let me start with the negative and then we'll toggle to a positive here. The negative is, what what negative consequences do you see for us down the road? I'm concerned about healthcare workers as well. I'm concerned there won't be as many of them because you and I are partially responsible for training people who go into that field 
we know that, uh, that, that the popularity of these fields are going down. We know the teachers are less of them. So what, what are going to be some of the, the repercussions of the pandemic, even after we're in the clear? Um, well, so this stretches my ability. You know, I did study the plague from the, the 1300s, like the plague. Um, but there are some correlates between massive pandemics and this is even bigger than the, the 1918 flu pandemic, but massive pandemics in human history. There's good reason to believe that the pandemic of the Black Death from 1347 to 1351 was the impetus from going from the Dark Ages to the Age of Enlightenment. Uh, a similar plague that could have been caused by Yersinia pestis, so the plague, the Black Death, could have triggered the fall of Rome. So generally, what we see is a shift in society following what amounts to a world-changing infectious disease. And I think we're starting to see that now with healthcare workers leaving the field, teachers leaving the field, you know, people just saying a job is not worth the risk and the beratement that I get from all of the, uh, the Karens out there. I mean, and not for nothing, and we don't get political on this show, but there is an ob observed turn towards, um, let's say, extremist ideology. And, and I'll be honest, I see that on the left and the right. Um, but, you know, if we're looking at Europe, if we're looking at South America, we're seeing um, the rise of these dictatorial figures on the model of somebody like Putin or Xi Jinping, or even Xi Jinping is consolidating power in China like we haven't seen in that country in a long time. Uh, there, there's the rise of dictators uh, across the, the globe, uh, I think partially because people are looking for somebody to just get a handle on things. And they're willing to sacrifice some freedom uh, in exchange for that comfort. And you know, you know my favorite quote, Rob, that I say from Game of Thrones, chaos is a ladder to be climbed. And we have not lived through a such a chaotic time on a worldwide scale as we're we're doing right now. So we are seeing the the breakdown of civil communication amongst various parties. All the more reason to be in college, where theoretically we're supposed to be modeling civil communication without, uh, well, with bias because we all have bias, but without allowing that bias to prevent us from seeking the truth. I'm going to sigh a little because it's also the case that our profession is uh, on the rocks. Uh, we are seeing uh, mass downturns in enrollment um, at our level, about 13% and, and nationwide, um, just people turning away from school. So <laughs> it's, it's an interesting time. We're, we're moving from the time of the scientist to the time of the sociologist. Once, once this surge is done and, it's under control and, and COVID becomes endemic as opposed to pandemic. Mm. So what does that mean? So when we're talking about a pandemic, we're talking about a virus spreading worldwide and essentially in uncontrolled fashion. So shockingly, right, the last two years of all of our lives. An endemic virus is something that we as a society, uh, based off of our, I guess, societal ideologic stance as well as the nature of the virus and immunology amongst the, the population um, have decided to essentially live with. Uh, the classic uh, comparison is the flu. Uh, so the flu has a seasonality. We consider it to be endemic on most years when there's not a new strain, which then becomes pandemic. Um, 
But what happens is it will decrease in the summer. We saw it last time with COVID. There will be a spike in the winter. Uh, this is very common for respiratory diseases, and it goes back into remission. As a society, we don't stop. We don't shut down for it. We just accept our losses. And there are significant losses every year for the flu. But society has just said, you know, whatever, 10,000 people. I don't have the exact statistics in front of me. But we say 10,000 people pass away from the flu every year. That's an acceptable societal loss to keep things going. Let me push a point that maybe would have belonged a bit earlier, but we'll let it stand here. Uh, vaccination. Now, I, I didn't want to belabor vaccination. It's something we've done on previous episodes. And uh, I personally believe at this point, I've read and, and I accept that uh, for the most part, if people are not vaccinated, there are very few things that will persuade them. In this country, um, we have a large political argument over vaccination uh, that is ongoing. And as a result, uh, we've seen situations where talk radio hosts, for example, uh, who have opposed vaccinations have died of COVID, and it has made absolutely no difference in the minds of their listeners. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, I believe that uh, there's very little that can be said or done to change somebody's mind about this. Uh, however, uh, what would have, given that Omicron is passing to my vaccinated brother-in-law uh, and theoretically could pass to me, even though on a less, uh, you know, on a smaller percentage, what, what difference would it have made if all Americans had decided I'm going to give up, you know, I'm going to make this sacrifice um, so that, that uh, the country can, can get back together. What would happen well, if everyone was vaccinated? So I, I think we have to go bigger than that. We have to look at a world scale with vaccine equity, which is obviously a, a topic that's far beyond the scope of what we can talk about today. But if we just focus and, and put the United States in a bubble, right? And if we had said from January 1st of 2021 through August 1st of 2021, everyone has to go. You have to get both doses of your vaccine, and that's just the way it's going to be. I I can't say for sure, but I'm going to say with pretty good confidence there would have never been Delta and there would have never been Omicron. We would have been done with this. You know, in, in counterpoint to my, you know, we're not going to talk people into getting vaccines. You know, we're not going to be able to do some sort of PSA. Uh, there is an argument that, you know, if you have to get a vaccine to get on a flight, for example, this is, is one way we can spread vaccination rates. Give, give me your take on that, Matt. So, I, I mean, this is my, my problem is we don't really debate the word the in in America. We just accept that that word exists. It, it has its purpose. We need it to keep on functioning. But somewhere along the line, we've decided that scientific facts that are objective and true can be debated and that somebody who has spent 10 minutes on YouTube has the equal training to my four years of an undergrad, my five years of grad school, my three years of a postdoc, and my seven years of a, a professor, right? Um, so along those lines, that that's the problem. You don't, you don't hear anybody, well, you hear very few people objecting to the measles vaccine or the flu vaccine or the polio vaccine or, you know, the other 18 vaccines that children get between the ages of zero days old and two years especially after the widely, widely debunked autism link, right? Putting that aside. So the fact that we're debating this is just political theater. And I, I don't see any reason why we couldn't as a society say, no, if you want to become a citizen or remain a citizen within a society, 
there are certain requirements that must uh, be upheld. We all pay our taxes, you get your COVID shot, and then you just move on. Had we had stronger feelings on that to begin with, or better, I don't know, camaraderie between different sides of the aisle in America, we may have had a better vaccination rate. And again, there's the worldwide distribution problem, there's vaccine equity, so it's a more complicated problem than this. But we, we may have vaccinated our way out of this um, earlier on. So, you know, you talk about your expertise, and, and we know that we have some trouble with experts. And, and uh, I have come to trust you, Matt, over the last two years on this subject, uh, in part, it, it, and not because I think that you're out there in the lab doing the research, because I know you're teaching for a living, um, but, but because I think that you have a handle on what is accurate and what is inaccurate out there in the wide world of information. But that's difficult for folks who don't have uh, this expertise. And, uh, you know, I'm going to complicate this even further. Some of the experts in their lives may be giving them false information. Uh, you know, if we asked, I don't know, Dr. Oz in the middle of the pandemic, what he thought, this man is a, a renowned heart surgeon. Uh, but, you know, if you ask your doctor in Orlando, he might have a take that doesn't necessarily agree with the, the CDC doctors who, let's be honest, haven't always been spot on with their recommendations uh, and have sort of vacillated. Most recently, we had that vacillation from 10 days to five to get people back to work. How do we know who to trust? How do we know? I mean, this is a question going forward, right? This is not the last time we're all going to have to make medical choices. How do we know who to trust? So it's it's a sticky wicket. And the problem is we, we watch science play out in real time you know, since this began. And science is messy. Science isn't clean. It takes us time to to find a better truth. And I say a better truth and not the ultimate truth because science is always willing to adapt and accept that something could be wrong that we previously thought right uh, based on new peer-reviewed evidence that is supported by further studies. And I think that's really the key is there's always going to be a, you know, a contrarian doctor, whether they be a medical doctor or a scientist, and there will be a handful of them who support something that has no peer review, that has a sample size of two, which would not be statistically significant, which would not be considered sort of high quality science. And those are the people we're seeing on, you know, the, the talk shows um, or the less reputable podcasts and things like that. So really what I do is I try to find the consensus amongst the information that is out there. And if you find that, you know, 95% of all scientists and doctors agree that, you know, getting the vaccine is going to help, there will always be that outlier of 5%. So you're looking for the consensus within the noise. And that should be your barometer for whether the information you're seeing from the larger group is correct and the smaller group may be, maybe incorrect or, or based off of uh, science that is not sound. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'd say if we're talking about bigger questions, the common knowledge might be wrong. You know, we can come to a consensus that maybe isn't research-based or, or whatever. But when we're talking about, like you're saying, these issues that are in real time, making your best decision is is in part a, a game of percentages, right? <laughs> right. I, I, I mean, we've learned a lot about 
the virus and how it spread. I, I mean, I still stand by this. This has been a modern miracle to go from a virus that we didn't know really existed in November, let's say, of 2019, to having vaccines, a, a second round of vaccines that have been coming out for that are Omicron-specific, and the amount of knowledge we've gained over two years has been astounding. And that is essentially with the opposition and the noise of the pseudoscientists that want the spotlight. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the question. When are we dealing with a pseudoscientist and when are we dealing with, um, I, I, I guess, a whistleblower? <laughs> Someone who's really caught us in, a, in an issue. And, and uh, that comes back to what that person is saying and whether there is evidence to back it up. Right, Matt? Right. I mean, you want to see the evidence, you know, with the whistleblower, right? If we take that case, they're going to have evidence to support their case that's going to be verifiable. It's going to be high quality. And, and they may be somebody who's trying to alert everyone to, to something that's being uh, hidden by a, a nefarious body. If you want to go down the sort of the conspiracy theory route there, right? Whereas somebody who is using pseudoscience is going to have quote-unquote evidence, but it's not going to hold up to scrutiny from the rest of the uh, educated, the scientific community or whatever specialty community that that evidence is supporting. Um, so, so that's really the question, right? A whistleblower will have evidence that holds up, whereas a conspiracy theorist or pseudoscientist will have evidence that essentially crumbles under uh, and you know further investigation. Yeah, that's really, I, I mean, I, I guess that for me is where it, what it really comes down to is what is the evidence that you are pro providing to support your claim? We, we keep hearing uh, this line from the conspiracy folks, do your own research or, or do the research, you know. Um, that means looking not just, oh, well, there's 50 YouTube videos that say this is a hoax, XYZ is a hoax, or, you know, that aliens are living in the White House. It means that all 50 of those sources need to tell you where they got this idea cut from, because it could all be coming from a single book by a single person who's, uh, you know, on an acid trip. We don't know. Uh, we do know if we look and we ask the question. And, and all of my episodes really boil down to that, all 100 plus. I'm looking for the evidence underneath to support the claim. How do we know this is true? And this is the way we can oppose, in my opinion, those common sense, you know, common knowledge things that may be wrong. It's also the way we can get behind some common knowledge stuff like vaccination that may be right. Show me the evidence that vaccination is a bad idea. And if your evidence is just some crank nonsense that somebody spat out uh, off the top of their head, that's not evidence. We need a smoking gun. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, just to circle back a little bit to you know, the comment about, you know, the Dr. Oz is out there, right? He's a heart surgeon. His doctorate, his medical degree does not hold bearing to my med, to my, I don't have a medical degree, to my PhD. In microbiology, I, right? When it comes in to microbiology. microorganisms, you're the it, expert. Exactly. I can literally understand how microorganisms work because that is my specialty. Nobody in their right mind wants me to perform open heart surgery. <laughs> that's that's how disparate these degrees are. So just because somebody can, you know, cut out somebody's heart and put in a new heart does not make them qualified, despite them being a doctor, to speak on infectious disease, just like I am not qualified to administer medical care to any individual.
expertise is a narrow thing. I, I mean, we talk about a lot of topics on this show, and I'm an expert in a very few of them. Uh, I'm an expert in occultism and an expert in ritual studies. And then the rest of it takes a lot of research. I have to research every single time because that's, that's how it is. Expertise is a, a very narrow thing. All right, Matt, let's get to something um, positive, I guess. Give me some end game. Are we in the end game? Gaze into your, your microbiological crystal ball. Are we at the end of this? In, in the words of Dr. Strange, we're in the end game now. <laughs> okay. uh, um, so I, I firmly believe all of the evidence, at least as of today, as of recording on January 13th, 2022, points to the fact that the that Omicron could be, and sh- I won't say should be, could be the last variant that we encountered that has the potential to spread in the way we've seen it um, happen over the last two years. Omicron is so contagious that it's essentially inducing immunity in large swaths of the population that previously had no immunity, the anti-vaxxed population, or the unvaxxed population, I should say. Uh, It's also boosting immunity in those individuals who are vaccinated or boosted, thus reducing the pool of potential uh, hosts, right? So human beings, potential individuals who can get infected for future variants. Um, We've seen in South Africa that the surge uh, takes about three weeks to grow and then it starts to decrease. That is corroborated by the epidemiological evidence in the United Kingdom where it grew for about three weeks and it's been declining for the last week. It seems to me in the Northeast United States, we're at about that three-week period, and places are starting to plateau and decrease. So it's pretty predictable. Once this has sort of washed over us, we should be um, in the clear. Um, hopefully, maybe there'll be another round of boosters this summer, which I will look forward to getting another another shot. However many they'd like to give me, I will take. Now, the the one caveat to that is, the more individuals that get infected with the virus, it's more opportunity to mutate. So there is still a possibility of another variant of concern coming out of this. We just don't know how it will mutate. Will it become more infectious and less deadly? Will it become less infectious and more deadly? There's a number of different ways that that could go, but ideally, once it can't spread like wildfires we're seeing now, it becomes endemic. It's something as a society we can deal with, just like we do with every other infectious disease, you know, before this pandemic started. So it becomes less infectious and less deadly? Is that the idea? Well, it could, it will probably become, it. What there's good evidence to suggest the common cold started out like this. So it started out as infectious and deadly, and then it just became the common cold. Um, there's a lot of debate, right? Do viruses tend to become more infectious and less deadly, or is that just sort of, you know, something we want to believe? I, I'm not quite sure about that, but it, it could become more or less infectious and more or less deadly. The idea would be less infectious, less deadly, but we'll we'll see what happens. Um, so we need it to go in both of those directions, really, to get to that endemic stage. 
I think I think once Omicron's done, we'll just be there as a society. There will not be an appetite to continuously shut down our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, in a couple of months, you know, our our young children will have the opportunity to be vaccinated, and at that point, everyone who wants a vaccine can have one. And then, if you choose to still remain unvaccinated, you have to accept the consequences of your actions, of whether that's personally getting sick or infecting a let's say a loved one. And, and what consequences could come from that. So what the world looks like then is COVID is, is people all have been saying this since the beginning, but it's a bit like the flu where it sort of boomerangs around the world and every fall it comes back and there we are. Exactly. Yep. And then we just accept the the societal losses as, and it sounds a little cold, but you know, the societal impact of a, of a deadly virus that just lives with us. And there's no way to avoid all infectious disease. Mm-hmm. We're tied together for all of human history they will be with us and we will be with them and it's it's just sort of um doing everything we can to to mitigate that risk and luckily we have a very good vaccine technology that can be updated quickly to keep us safe and protected as does the flu vaccine every year so people who are vaccinated have every reason to expect that they need not fear covid any more than they fear getting pneumonia every year I, I sure hope so. Yes. Uh, starting, <laughs> starting very soon. I know. So these are predictions. We don't know. Matt doesn't know if he's, he'll have to come back if he's wrong and we'll have to fix it all. But these are predictions today. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, I mean, to, to give your listeners any, you know, hopefully some, some confidence, you know, over the pandemic, I had a number of friends get married. I have a wedding at the end of February and a wedding at the end of March. And I have no hesitation attending both of those. Yep. And, and we're hoping that you'll feel the same way in June because <laughs> yes. we all had a good summer, right? June was great. June and July. Right. And, and, and I do, back. I do. Th- yeah. I do think that, um, you know, it, it will follow the same seasonality as any respiratory virus. So summers will always be better than winters, but hopefully winters will not be nearly as severe as the last two that we've seen. It will be more on par with, with influenza. And if we're well, we wouldn't be expecting to be wearing masks anymore indoors or any of that sort of stuff. Uh, that that's a different question, right? In in um, Asian nations, there's a lot of you know people who wear masks every every winter to avoid infectious disease. So I'm wondering, as a society, do we just say, hey, you know what? It's flu season. We'll just say it's flu season. Mm-hmm. There's sick people around. There. I'm just going to wear a mask to the grocery store because it's crowded. Now there won't be mandates. There won't be this this phobia around. Oh, I forgot my mask. I can't go to the store. Mm-hmm. It will just be like, ah, I, don't, I really don't feel like getting a cold right now so i'm gonna put on a mask so going to teach class you might not but going to the airport you might exactly yeah that makes sense all right matt well thank you again for updating us i I sincerely hope uh this is always i think an intelligent conversation i hope folks enjoy it i I know we we do get i want to thank brian uh brian d who you you did an episode with matt brian asked us to do the pandemic update this time but we're always getting messages from folks when things change to have matt back on but i'm hoping what i'm trying to say here I'm hoping uh, to get you back on to discuss something else entirely. <laughs> yeah, I, I love being I love being on the podcast. I hope next time we're talking about some not world changing pandemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so our resident pandemic expert, Dr. Matt Hackop, thank you again.